Uh, just before I get too far into this thing, if it sounds like I was a, at a party all week, I was. It's called General Assembly. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why my voice sounds so tired, but, uh, you know, just uh, lots, of, lots of debating on the floor, I guess. Uh, so look forward to reporting, not next week because I won't be here with y'all, but the week after when Dave uh, reports. And so now, uh, if you're able, please stand with me as we hear the word of the Lord together. This morning I'll be reading from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. It's Acts 4, 23 through 31. Hear now the word of the Lord. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. And while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders, take place in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. We pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this chance to gather as your people, to hear your word. Uh, we pray, Father, that um, as we see you in this passage, that you would capture our hearts and attention this morning. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that we'd be convicted, that we'd be comforted, that we'd be challenged. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we know that your word, uh, as it goes out, does not come back void. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts this morning. And I, Father, we thank you for the truth that you, you will. In the name of pray, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, uh, we are continuing in our study of the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at the passage I just read, Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. And over the past few weeks, uh, we have followed the story of Peter and John from healing the lame man outside of the temple to preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ inside those temple grounds, to their arrest by the priests and the Sadducees, to their trial before the council of rulers and elders. And all along the way, we've seen God working wonders. Uh, we have heard Peter and John boldly proclaiming the gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And in the end, unable to find a reason to punish them, fearing the response of the people, uh, the council decides that they have to release Peter and John but first, they warn the disciples. Uh, they warn them. They tell them not to do any more miracles. Don't preach in the name of Jesus Christ any longer. And Peter and John tell them that they aren't going to stop. Uh, they're not going to stop doing either of those things because they have to obey God rather than men. And so the council tries again. They threaten them again, and then they let Peter and John go. And this is where our passage this morning picks up the story. Uh, Peter and John, and, and ultimately the entire church in Jerusalem, 
are, are now opposed by the religious leadership in that city. And Peter and John have been warned. Uh, they've been threatened to stop their ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. And as the story moves forward, the question becomes, how are they going to respond? You know, the question is, how are they going to respond? Because last time, uh, we saw the disciples face opposition. When we saw them face the threat of violence, it didn't go well. Uh, we saw Peter pull out a sword and cut off a man's ear. Uh, that same night, we heard Peter deny that he knew Jesus three times. Uh, we know that other disciples, they ran away. Uh, they locked themselves in a room out of fear. And so these men have a history of failing in the face of opposition. And, and so far in the book of Acts, the church has found favor with the people of Jerusalem. But now, the same men who put Jesus Christ to death are threatening his followers. And so this morning, we're going to follow the story of how the followers of Jesus Christ respond to opposition that arises in this chapter. And, and the reason why this passage is so important for us today is because we can be sure that the day is coming when we as followers of Jesus Christ will face opposition as well. Uh, whether it's in the form of just really hard, challenging conversations with family or friends, or, or the threat of discipline in the office place or on a campus, or exclusion from a certain career path, or the threat of violent acts uh, like we've seen around the world and even at times in our own country. Uh, the day is coming, and to some extent um, is here, when we as followers of Jesus Christ will face opposition for seeking to be faithful to his teaching and to his commands. And in, in 2010, Peter Hitchens, uh, who's best known as being the brother of the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens, uh, he released a book entitled The Rage Against God. Uh, it's called The Rage Against God. And in this book, Peter Hitchens makes the case uh, that atheists, uh, the atheists don't only reject God because of the logical arguments, but that they actually seek out these logical arguments because they're enraged at the very idea that there is a God to whom they must submit their will and their intellect and their behavior. And I'm going to read a little bit of it. Um, and the reason I want to read it is because he, uh, he lists out, he explains why people dislike Christianity so much. And he says that the main reason that people reject Christianity is this. Uh, Christianity's call for submission. That's what he says. Christianity's call for submission. Submission to established authority and its disturbing implication that others can and will decide what I must be and do. Uh, that's one of the main hang-ups, one of the main problems people have with Christianity as this idea that we have to submit um, to an established authority. You know, we live in an age of self. We live in the age of expressive individualism, uh, the age of liberating people to be authentically themselves. Uh, we live in an age where we are limited by very few technological, financial, uh, consumer, or even medical boundaries. And this means that individuals in our culture feel empowered uh, to decide what their own reality will be and then to augment themselves and the world around them to match. Yeah, so, we, so we live in a culture that has rejected any idea of a creator or a created order, and we have instead set ourselves up as self-defining kings of our own little kingdoms using technology and our purchases and the medical field to race, reshape our reality and to reshape our identity to meet our every desire. And as a culture, we are furious at the very thought of a sovereign God who has any authoritative moral claims over us. You know, we live in a culture that doesn't just reject the idea of a God. We live in, in a culture enraged at the suggestion that there is a God. And, and the question for us this morning is this. How can we prepare for the moment when the rage against God is directed towards us? You know, we're going to look at this passage and do a lot of things, but the, one of the questions we want to answer is, how can we prepare for the moment when the rage against God is directed towards us? 
Um, as God's people, uh, we can be sure that the day is coming when opposition to God, when opposition to his word, will become opposition to his people. And we can be sure of this because we're seeing it already right now all around the world, uh, because we've seen it all throughout church history, and because we see it in our passage this morning. And since we know that the day will come when the rage against God will be directed towards his people, you know, we can prepare for this certain moment by learning from the faithful response of the early church. So this morning, we're going to walk through this passage together. Uh, we're going to take some time to study just how these believers responded uh, to the sudden rise of opposition against them. And then we'll look briefly at two ways that we can prepare to face opposition ourselves. And so as we begin, let me reread verse 23 for us. Verse 23 says, When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And so in this verse, we read that Peter and John are released from prison, that they return to their own companions, which likely means the original group who gathered together on the day of Pentecost, and they report to this group all that was said to them, including the warnings, including the threats, uttered by the same people who had put Jesus to death. And in response to this news, uh, they have been ordered and threatened to no longer preach or do miracles in the name of Jesus. This community turns to prayer. That's what we're told. The first thing they do is they turn to prayer. And at the beginning of verse 24, we read these words. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. Uh, their response to opposition is to lift their voices to God in prayer. And as they pray, they begin their prayer by comforting themselves with the truths of Scripture. Uh, they comfort themselves with the truths of Scripture. And I'm going to read verses 24 through 28 for us, and then we'll walk through those. It says this. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And so here in these verses, the gathered church comforts themselves, and they really look at, they kind of pray four truths from Scripture, and I want us to walk through those four truths together. Uh, the first comforting truth that we find in this prayer is the truth that God is the sovereign creator of the, of the world. So the first comforting truth that we see in this passage is that God is the sovereign creator of this world. In verse 24, they address God as the one who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And so with those words that we recognize, this, you know, kind of borrowed language from the Old Testament, they remind themselves as they address God in prayer that the God they're praying to is the God who created everything. You know, with, with the words, uh, made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them, they've covered it all, right? They're, going, they're saying to themselves, reminding themselves of the comforting truth that the God who's hearing their prayers is the God who made everything. Uh, there is comfort in remembering that the religious leaders aren't merely opposing the followers of Christ. The religious leaders are opposing the God who made all things. Um, and it is the God who made all things that the believers are to obey. And so that first comforting truth that we find in this prayer is the truth that God is the sovereign creator over everything. And then the second comforting truth that we find in this prayer is the truth that God... I was going to say the same thing again. Hold on. The second truth is that we find in this passage that God is the truth of the inspiration of Scripture. They remind themselves of the truth of the inspiration of Scripture. 
Yeah, as they pray, they tell themselves, their prayer reminds them that the words of Scripture come to us through the Holy Spirit. And because of this, we can know that God's Word is able to speak into every moment of our lives, even into the hardest moments of our lives. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm going to read this for us. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that's the truth we find the church remembering in this passage as they apply the inspired words of Scripture to this moment of opposition they have found themselves in. They find comfort in the truth that God's inspired word speaks to every moment of our lives, including moments of opposition, even moments of violent opposition. And we see this as they begin to pray the words of Scripture in the next verses. And so that second comforting truth is the truth of the inspiration of Scripture. The third comforting truth we find in this prayer is the truth that the nations have always raged against God. It's the truth that the nations have always raged against God. In verses 25 and 26, uh, what you find there is a quote of a few verses from Psalm 2, and it's from the, the Septuagint. It's from the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is why the language may look different if you read Psalm 2 earlier. Uh, so they say, Why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm that is both fulfilled by King David while still pointing to the future Messiah who's going to fulfill this prophecy perfectly. And I want to turn to Psalm 2 for a second and read it because I think it'll really help us to grasp why this passage was a comfort to them in this moment. So I'm going to look at Psalm 2. I'm going to read the first four voice, uh, verses. Psalm 2, 1 through 4. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. In Psalm 2, we're told that the people of this world who have rejected God as their ruler, have always raged against God. And they've always raged against his anointed. But we're also told that they're plotting, their rage is in vain. And that God's response is laughter at their efforts to overthrow him and his plans and his, for him and his anointed. And there, in a song called Our God is in the Heavens, uh, Christian rapper Shai Lin compares the rage and the opposition of the nations against God to a kid trying to conquer Spain with a super soaker. Uh, if you remember the old super soaker, some of you do. Um, and, and the point being that the best devised opposition to God, the most enraged opposition to God, is comically insufficient when compared to the power, might, and majesty of the, our sovereign God. And so as the believers pray, they comfort themselves with the truth that the nations have always raised against God and against his anointed, and that God is still on his throne, and that his plans are still completely unhindered. You know, they don't need to fear the rage of these religious authorities because their rage is comically insufficient when compared to the might of the sovereign God of the universe to whom they're addressing their prayers. And so the third comforting truth that we find in this prayer is the truth that the nations have always raged against God. And then the fourth comforting truth that we find in this prayer, and this one's a little longer, so I'll say it twice. Uh, the fourth comforting truth we find in this prayer is the truth that the death of Jesus at the hands of the rulers, the Gentiles, and Israel 
was always part of God's plan for redemption. The death of Jesus at the hands of the rulers, the Gentiles, and Israel was always part of God's plan for redemption. I'm going to read verses 27 and 29 of Acts 4 again. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What you hear in this prayer is that they see Psalm 2 as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Herod and Pilate, the rulers in the region, the Gentile Romans who carried out the execution of Jesus, and the Israelites who cried out for the death of Jesus, all conspired against God and his anointed, but they failed because all that happened was done according to God's plan. That's what these believers are reminding themselves of. They find comfort in the truth that even those who gathered together and put Jesus to death only had the power and authority to do so because this was the plan of redemption from before the beginning of time. And so if opposition is arising against God's church, they can take comfort in knowing that nothing, not even the death of Jesus Christ, happens outside of the sovereign plan of their God. And so they comfort themselves by remembering that these people who have just threatened them, the same people who put Jesus to death, all that happened according to God's plan, and they can know that they're still in God's plan, that God is still caring for them. He is still sovereign over everything that's happening. And so the fourth comforting truth we find in this prayer is the truth that the death of Jesus at the hands of the rulers, the Gentiles, and Israel was always part of God's plan for redemption. And so in these verses, we find the gathered believers, they're faced with threats, they're faced with warnings if they continue to obey the Great Commission. And so they pray, and as they pray, they find comfort in the truths of Scripture. And as they pray, their quieted hearts confidently bring their requests before their God. In verses 29 and 30, we hear three very confident requests that flow out of their comforted hearts. And, um, and the first request that we hear in this prayer it's the request that God take note of the threats against them. Uh, the first thing they, want God, they ask God to do is to take note, to notice the threats against them. You know, it can be easy to think when we read through the book of Acts, it can be easy to think that these were super Christians uh, who possessed a level of fearless faith that we can't ever attain. Uh, but this first request shows us this isn't the case. Uh, they had already seen what this group of religious leaders was willing to do when they convinced the Romans to execute Jesus on fake charges. Uh, but this time, instead of running and hiding, they call on their sovereign God to notice the trouble that they're in. And they do this because they're confident that their God knows their troubles, that God cares about their troubles, and that he will not hesitate to answer their prayers. And so they call on him in confidence, asking him to notice the trouble that they are now in. And then the second request that we hear in this prayer is the request that God enable them to speak his word with boldness. I'm going to read verse 29 again. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And it's interesting to think about what they don't pray for here. Uh, rather than pray for deliverance from these authorities, rather than pray for God's judgment against those who have set themselves against this church, both of which would have been legitimate prayers, they pray for boldness to continue doing what they've been commanded not to do in spite of the consequences that may come. And again, they don't pray this because they aren't concerned. They pray this because they are concerned. They know that they failed in the past. They know what may happen to them if they disobey these authorities. But they are committed to faithfully obeying the commands of the resurrected Lord to carry the message of the gospel to the world beginning in Jerusalem. 
And since obeying man rather than obeying God is not an option to them, they request that the Lord enable them to continue speaking his word boldly, confident that he will send them what they need for this task. And so the second request that we hear in this prayer is the request that God enable them to continue speaking his word boldly. And then the third request we hear in this prayer is the request that God continue to work wonders among them and through them. Uh, we hear this request that God continue to work wonders among them and through them. And we hear this request in verses 29 and 30. So I'm going to read those again. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You know, this, this whole sequence of events began with Peter and John miraculously and publicly healing a man in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, they healed this man, a crowd gathered, they proclaimed and preached the gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ, and we are told that after this day, the number of men in the church was now close to 5,000. Uh, that's why they were arrested. If we remember back a few chapters, that's why they are arrested in the first place. And here, they request that God continue to work wonders among them and through them. You know, it's these wonders and signs performed by the apostles that for many confirm the message of the gospel they're hearing. You know, if these men do something that only God can do, then the logic of the people listening, the logic of these crowds, is that if they're doing something only God can do, then they must be speaking and acting from God. So the presence of these signs and wonders testified to the truth of the message. And so they pray that God will continue to allow them to perform these miracles. And the very next verse, we're told that God responds to their request. I'm going to read verse 31. It says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You know, they, they prayed that God will continue to work wonders and signs, and God responds to their prayer by giving them a sign. We're told that the room that they are gathered in begins to shake like an earthquake is happening. And this, and this reminds us of Mount Sinai when Exodus 19 tells us that the presence of God caused the mountain to tremble greatly. It reminds us of Isaiah 6 when we're told that in the presence of God, the foundations of the heavenly temple trembled at his voice. And so here in Acts 4, this shaking room is a sign that God is near. He has not abandoned them. And then God answers their prayer for boldness by filling them with the Holy Spirit. And this language of now, the filling of the Holy Spirit after the day of Pentecost can be confusing. Uh, so I want to read for you all two quotations that I found very helpful this week um, as I was preparing. The first comes from a gentleman named Douglas Kelly, uh, who was a professor at RTS uh, for Dave and I both. Um, and he, he explains this verse this way. He says, Although Pentecost is once for all, the filling of the Spirit seems to be an ongoing occurrence in the Christian life. And so that's what Douglas Kelly says. And then, uh, another professor named Joel Beakey, he says, Those apostles had been filled before. This need not imply that they lost the filling and regained it, but indicated that to be filled with the Spirit, which we must remember is a phys physical figure of speech for a divine person's actions, uh, to be filled with the Spirit allows for different degrees and dimensions of the Spirit's work. And, and so what we have in Acts 4 is a group of believers who have received the initial gift of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, they are now being further filled with the Holy Spirit to empower them for a specific task. And this task is to preach boldly in the face of opposition. And the Lord answers their prayer and fills them with the Spirit, empowering for the task that he's called, um, he's called them to, the task that he has set before them. And as we read this passage, we see the church facing the threat of opposition, 
And when they do, they don't run away. They don't take up the sword and fight. You know, they don't deny they know Christ. Instead, they turn to God in prayer. And in this prayer, they comfort themselves with the truth of Scripture, and they bring their request to God, confident that he will hear them and respond. And as he does, he shakes the building as a sign of his presence with them in this moment. Uh, he emboldens them for their mission by sending the Holy Spirit. You know, their response to opposition is completely different than it was the first time. You know, their previous failure now looks like faithful dependence on their God. And so the question that we're left with this morning is this. You know, how, how can we prepare for the moment when the rage against God is directed towards us? And before we go this morning, I want to take just a few minutes to talk about two ways that we can prepare to faithfully stand in the face of opposition. And the first way that we can prepare to faithfully stand in the face of opposition is by learning from the saints who have and who are already suffering from Christ. Uh, so we begin by learning from the saints who have and who are already suffering for Christ. Um, opposition to God and to his word and his people is not a new thing. Uh, we can prepare our hearts to face opposition by learning from those who already have and who already are suffering. Uh, we have so many stories in the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, that tell us of faithful men and women who remained faithful in the face of opposition. We have stories in the Old and New Testaments that tell us of how God remained faithful to those who were attempting to remain faithful to him in the face of opposition. Uh, we have 2,000 years of church history that is full of stories of men and women, uh, missionaries and martyrs, pastors, lay people, who remained faithful, even faithful unto death in the face of persecution and opposition. Uh, we have the stories of men and women and children who are suffering even right now around our world because of their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, as we seek to prepare our hearts to faithfully face opposition, we can learn from their stories of faithfulness. We can learn from the stories of God's faithfulness to them. Um, and we can look at the common themes of a church grounded in the Word of God, uh, filling our hearts with the truths and promises of Scripture to sustain us in those hard moments, uh, we can look at the common theme of a church grounded in prayer together, bringing our requests confidently to our God who hears us and who knows and cares and acts. Uh, we can see the common theme of a church committed to the mission given to it by Jesus. And so the first way that we can prepare to faithfully stand in the face of opposition is by learning from the saints who have and who are already suffering for Christ. And then the second way that we can prepare to faithfully stand in the face of opposition is by learning from the one who suffered on our behalf. Uh, we can learn from the one who suffered on our behalf. Uh, Jesus is our ultimate example of how to respond to opposition in this world. And I'm going to read a, a short passage from the book of 1 Peter. I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, where we kind of see this laid out for us. This is 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. For if you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed." For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You know, the most unfair thing that has ever happened in the history of the world was about to happen. It's what's described in this passage. 
to perfect Jesus. And Peter tells us that as Jesus was approaching his death, he didn't lash out in anger, he didn't make threats, that he continued to walk faithfully, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The shepherd and guardian of our souls, choosing faithfulness in the face of suffering, gave himself up for us on a cross, faced the wrath of God, and he did this so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And as we prepare to come face to face with the opposition of this world, let us continue to entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ, the shepherd and guardian of our souls, as we seek to follow him in faithfulness, trusting his provision for us. Let's pray.